0: Welcome to Two p Kairos with Christian Flutter and Mike Marinas.
1: Hello and welcome to Two Tyres. Kairos. It is myself, Mike Marinas, and of course my wonderful co-host, Dr. Christian Flutter. How are you doing?
0: Mike, I'm doing absolutely fantastic, even though it's like 35 degrees down there. The humidity is about, yeah. about 0.1 of a percent away from oh uh, what, what's this? I, am it. I saying the wrong kind of degrees? <laughs> You (laughs) use Celsius over there, don't you?
1: (laughs) No, we do. We do. I'm just. I just. We have no degrees over here. We have. We have. Yeah. Yeah. We have. That's the. That's the joke. Is when you wake up and you have more degrees than the weather. It's not good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But but you know I hear it's okay because you're busy drinking a delicious cup of coffee with what in it?
1: So, I've had a coffee put together for me this morning. It has coffee, and I'm not sure exactly what the coffee is. Um there's some it's some fancy coffee, but there's I, I I've been put on a ration of honey and almond milk inside the coffee. I'm still alive, it's still okay. Um you know that's I'm getting used to it. I'm getting used the, the... to it. I know the aficionados out there will have a problem with that. Yeah, I'm having I can a problem, see an so... aficionado to my left-hand side. That's <laughs> a big <good> problem.
0: <laughs> yeah. You see. I can, I, can, I can live with the honey. I'm like, you know what, honey? Yeah, you know what? You know, there are systematic reviews on the, the benefits of eating honey for colds and flus, for instance. like It's yeah. really good for coughs and, and a lot of throat-based infections. The almond milk and honey and coffee, that's an interesting coffee. Like almonds and honey? Yes, honeyed almonds. They're delicious. Yeah. Put them in yeah. like, yeah, it's fantastic, but add them to coffee. Interesting. Yeah,
1: it's one of those. It's one of those things. It's one of those things. I had I had a uh, a little boy about four or five years old the other day come in and gave me a recipe which I thought was going to be disgusting, oh, yes. and it actually turned out to be pretty good. Okay, it's a four year old recipe, so it's basically two pieces of food mashed together. But it was pickles and peanut butter.
0: Oh, you know what? That's great. It's brilliant. I get that. That that is I, that can, I can see that better. Vo-
1: and then I went home and I was like, "Look, I mean, use four, but let me give it a shot." It was amazing.
0: And you see, this actually, strangely enough, leads to, and it actually it segues into what we want to talk about tonight, really, really well. What we've done here is utilized two brilliant case examples, where look, it's not systematic reviews, it's not uh, it's not clinical trials, yeah. it's n equals one. But do you know what happened? you actually? got a benefit out of this one, didn't
1: you? Yeah, I had and someone who used something and I thought, hmm, let me try that thing as well. Now, there's not a hundred people haven't tried it. A thousand people haven't tried it. Just the one kid tried it. But that kid, I, I kind of, I thought, hang on a second, that kid's kind of like me. I think if he could enjoy it, maybe I could enjoy it. Then if I wait.
0: Exactly. I am a
1: four-year-old and now I'm just my house full of pickles. <laughs> Peanut butter. <laughs>
0: But, but there you go. You're now at n equals two of yep. a positive outcome. And you know what? I'm going to try go. putting those. Do you, do you have to dip the pickle into the peanut butter or do you just?
1: It's so important, right? It's so important. No cutting the pickle. It has to be a whole pickle. The, and mm-hmm. you have to dip it into the jar and you have to get a dollop of, of of the peanut butter on top. And then as you crunch through it, it's just a taste explosion. There's, there's something salty about it. There's something really sort of savoury about it it's, it's yeah. really good
0: i can imagine there's going to be a saltiness a savouriness, and a umaminess that that, that kind of back yes. of the throat texture going on yeah
1: there. and at the same time your brain is going what are you doing And that <laughs> together is just magical exactly and
0: meanwhile our wives will be standing in the background going are you pregnant
1: yes exactly <laughs> again <laughs>
0: Again, that's it. I'm, like, I'm still getting rid of my three-month-old little down here. This is, it's coming along uh, very submission. nicely. Oh, uh, yeah. But Mike, but Mike, Mike, Mike. So yeah. after all this, uh, that was a bit of a funsies. I actually didn't expect yeah. that to be a nice little segue, but it worked out very nicely. Oh, yeah, I would like to talk about case studies and yeah. research. You know, this is something that's been, I, I'd say it's been a bit of an Achilles heel for chiropractors, especially yeah. in the last, well, prior to the last 25-odd years. We've certainly had an improvement in the rate of um, publications coming through, but we're we're really behind the eight ball when it comes to getting what we do out there in the publication world. Yeah.
1: Yeah. it's very it's it's very very true. I mean, I I remember one uh, one guy that I was chatting to when I, I was in South Africa. There are about eight hundred chiropractors in South Africa, just to put in perspective, mm. there are eight hundred people. Now, you wouldn't print a magazine for eight hundred people. Just to put it into perspective, you know, you wouldn't have something printed that you would go and buy at a shop or in this way. So that amount of people trying to put together that kind of research, and I put it, I uh, put chiropractic against uh, other healthcare disciplines, where especially, and I just really know the stats in South Africa, but I think we were running at about twenty thousand registered physios. Uh, just to give an idea of what the difference is. Uh, but when it comes to the research world, obviously we're all pitted against each other because we kind of have to be because you, th- that's the way the world works now. It is very evidence based. It's very show me your empirical and and, and I'll show you mine. Um, mm-hmm. But as you say, we 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 have been behind for a long, long time. There are good reasons for that.
0: Yeah. Look, um, you've published a few papers. I've published a few papers, and I think the biggest hurdle is always going to be finance. Yeah. You know, trying to raise the funds. Um, but that's, that's a bit of a false reality. You know, we, we think about, oh, you know, we can't do this study because I don't have X number of dollars to get it started. Hmm. Um, you know what happens is if you've got this great idea and you have all that money, you know what the first actual hurdle that comes across after that one is? Mm-hmm. Ethics. Ethics. Yeah. Okay. Um, have you ever dealt with an ethics committee
1: or a direct... I have yeah. indeed. I've dealt with a South African one and a UK based one. Both oh, quite well different done. because ethics also has quite a bit of change around, although it's not supposed yeah. to, but quite different when, you, when you're dealing with people in different spaces because people have different concerns. But it's not an easy task. And, and especially us sitting in our line of work, working with pediatrics, now ethics takes on our whole new sheen as well.
0: Very much so. Because you know what they want to look for? is a reason why you're doing that clinical trial,
1: mm. okay?
0: And so they have to look out for the public's best interest, the patient's best interest, and your best interests, okay? Mm. So they're busy doing all these different steps to try and make sure that this is actually a viable study that will benefit the community, benefit the greater population, and be worthwhile doing at the same time. And you know what makes that really hard? So we've talked about this one. We're trying to get into this, this higher grading stuff. So, you know, there's different tiers of evidence. Yeah. Um, if you don't have a good reason why you're doing that study or why you're doing that RCT, it's just going to get knocked back. Okay? Yeah. So you might, have, you might have the best technique known to mankind and you could do amazing things with people and you could get to that, that committee and they'll say, well, right, how, you should, how do you know it's going to work? There's no other published evidence that this thing's going to work, yeah. which then leads us down to, should we be starting at level one evidence? You know, should we yeah. be trying to get RCTs out? Should we be trying to do the meta-analyses and systematic reviews and all that kind of whatnot? Do you just get a house and poof, there it's there? Yeah. How do you build a house?
1: Yeah, brick by brick by brick. Brick those by are the brick.
0: Bricks. Exactly. And what makes up the bricks of the research world?
1: Okay, like studies case studies case yeah. studies this it's a really important things. it's a really important and, and i really uh, like the way you put that across because that's the thing you can't just jump into uh, jump into an rct because there, there, there are risks and there are rewards to these things and if you're going to do something that has any potential risk you have to be able to have some sort of show of reward. And I'm kind of thinking like in a pediatric space, uh, like I had I had a little kid in the other day where uh, uh, I saw them after another chiropractor had seen them uh and nine years old and she came in with an x-ray and initially i thought oh a nine-year-old with an x-ray that's very interesting because it's risk and reward because we don't particularly want to x-ray kids if we don't have to we need a really really good reason and then reading through his cover letter to me i was like oh this has been an ongoing pain in the long bone which she's getting pain in the evenings and it's not responding to this and that and then you start going aha so the risk and reward here has actually worked its way out. And that's why we needed to do that. Now we've seen that there's no pathology. Now we can carry on. But it always carries that risk and reward. And, and that kind of idea runs its way into research.
0: Oh, yes. I, I like that you've said risk and reward. We use risk and benefit down here as well. And yeah. so it's, it's that same system, that same understanding. Is, there has to be something uh, worthwhile for you to be doing this one. And they look at risk-benefit, risk-reward type of stuff with just about everything that's going on at the moment. You know, we're in the middle of COVID pandemic. Yeah. Still... And so it's um, where we're having to weigh up a lot of decisions that we are making or policymakers have to make in regards to this risk versus reward type
1: of stuff. Mm-hmm. But that's a
0: lovely digression, yeah. man. I, yeah. could, I could go down that little tangent. But, it is, but, but,
1: but, but it's important because, because there we start to see that's a really good risk versus benefit because mm-hmm. now we're starting to see papers having to be published at the speed of light. And what people oh, are looking word, for yes. is definites. And anyone who works inside the research world, you work in it a lot more than I do. I'm I'm a little kippy when it comes into it, and I'm getting there. But, you know, I do understand that, that the more you get into it, it's not black and white. It's literally all shades of gray. And we create, even when you start getting to that high, high level, that meta-analysis level, we're still saying things like, we believe that there's not enough information, but from what we have, we could potentially say, and it's all the maybes potentially we could, it's not Correct. the black and white. And all the public is looking for is someone to say, well, this works, or this is, and my favorite, this is safe. Mm-hmm. It, it's a, it's, that's a massive generalization, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's really, really interesting. And, and, and it is interesting to live in these times when research now has to be pumped out at the speed of light and it has to say exactly the right thing. And we know that that's not how it works.
0: You're, yeah, exactly. And I've also been a little bit concerned. See, one of the things, okay, so you've had papers published recently. Okay, the yeah. process when you go through getting your things published, we've just had, we, we submitted one to JMPT, and it's just come back from its first round of reviews. And okie okay, uh, dokie, yeah. you know what? I've, I've, <laughs> I remember the first publication I ever submitted. It was for the Chiropractic Journal of Australia. And, look, let's be honest, in the grand grand scale, this is what happens when you have a glass of wine when you're doing this one, is the words start to blur. My convergence. Oh, (laughs) cheap. My, my virgin systems are still working okay, so I'm not seeing double, which means my cerebellum's still okay, which means let's keep on going. Yeah. And um, so the CJA, so it's, it's not the highest ranking of all the different journals out there, but it publishes case studies. Okay, so look, I published this one. I had my first reviewer comments come back, and I was like, oh, my gosh, and I had to do a few little grammar changes and a few little things here and there, and the next round, all good. And then I had one published in uh, the JCCA, so the Journal of the Canadian Chiropractic Association, mm-hmm. and okay, that was looking at hips. And I got that review back, and I thought, "Oh boy, yeah. I'm I'm just going to uh, I think I'm just going to go quit now because
1: I'm never doing <laughs> this again.
0: <laughs> never doing. I had to resubmit that paper, and it was about eighty percent highlighted text to indicate that it had been changed. Mm-hmm. Okay. I submitted another one to Breastfeeding Review on Breastfeeding Difficulties. And that one was about the same sort of thing, but it was interesting because they weren't chiropractors. So, well, I, I presume they weren't yeah. chiropractors. These are, were blinded on as average. to what reviewers are.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah, but the questions that came back, I'm like, wow, that's a really different point of view. I would not have expected that type of review comment to come back. And again, about 60% needing to be changed. But this one with JMPT, Oh, I think we're looking at about 85% changes. Yeah. But having said that, it's a lot of structural move this bit here, move that bit there. Great concept here. You need to back this bit up a little bit better. This reference is a bit outdated. And so a lot of that kind of stuff. But the more you, uh, the higher the level of a journal that you're applying for, the more thorough the review comes back. And the more thorough the review, the longer the time process takes. Okay. So I'm a little bit concerned. When I see a study that's been in, 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 very, yeah. very quickly, it makes me question, okay, how thorough was that review? How well did they actually dig into that reference, that, 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 that actual, that manuscript? Yeah. I mean, this, we're working our way through. So we had three reviews come back and we're working through, three out of four, I think, and uh, we're working through one at the moment. And he has gone through every one of our references yeah. And read all the references as well. And I'm like, that is a very good review.
1: Mm-hmm. I've done that before on people's papers and reading the references. I'm like, that's not in there. The thing that you said oh, was in there does not exist in <laughs> Yep. I've it seen that too. It talks around it, but it yeah, doesn't exist.
0: Exactly. And then you have to say, is this reference actually saying what you think it's saying? Or mm-hmm. is there? was that just a convenience reference? Or did you kind of get the numbers wrong a little bit? Yeah, so in when I'm seeing that lightning kind of response, yeah, it does make you question. Yeah. Oh,
1: have you seen there is a there's a bit of a trend now, and I, this is about the third one I've seen where they do flash reviews. Oh, and it's rapid rapid. That's the one. So yeah, so it's the rapid <laughs> reviews where where it's literally like oh, I'm just trying to sex it up, I suppose, for the podcast. Um, so, yeah, so the rapid review, so I'm, I've seen about three or four of these now where it's literally like taking a snapshot of where we are yeah. and then coming out with a conclusion. And it's great if you're in the space of understanding what a rapid review is, what it's there for, it's there to kind of go, let's take as much data as we have right now and let's try and get an informed to a degree opinion so that we can start policy yep. or decisions and that kind of thing. It's not stone it's not it's not no. chapter in verse
0: and this is this is actually one of those it's a bit of a a uh, trap for young players if you will because it looks at like a lot of those rapid reviews they they are structured in similar manners to like your scoping and systematic reviews yeah. and so people look at that and go oh wow it's very thorough but it's yeah. actually the lowest tier mm. of that that review kind of a system so it's like a narrative review almost um so you've got to be very again a pinch of salt with it but what it does do is as you said it takes that snapshot so i'm working on a i'm working on a scoping review at the moment with the the brilliant uh oh i don't know if i should name i'm going to melissa she's absolutely brilliant Uh, and she's she's been a, a, a fantastic mentor guide through this whole process because you know i said look i'd like to do this and she's like, are you sure? But yeah, I'm like, that's... yeah, all right. You know, I've got spare time. And subsequently, I've lost, I'd say, about three quarters of my, you know, eyebrows, hair. It's turning gray. It's fantastic. Yeah. But it's it really, it gives a, it's not an in-depth analysis of the research. It tells us what research is there.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It
0: gives us the groundwork to then get into that systematic review.
1: Okay. So this is the, sco- so the scoping, just so I'm right, because I'm thinking, I'm thinking a lot of people listening are going to be in the same boat. So the scoping review is kind of to do like a wide net grab and Correct. go, I don't want, we don't want to miss anything that's out there, which is one, one of the things that these rapid reviews do. They kind of find what they find. But mm-hmm. with the scoping one, you're going, okay, this is everything that's there. That's going to be the baseline. Now you can start to take things, but you can be assured that this is where everything is.
0: That's it. So yes, I think the best way to say it is the scoping review is like when you cast your net into the ocean, Mm -hmm. okay, and the first thing you do is you catch all the fish and you pull them up and you put them on the boat and you go, wow, caught a lot of fish. Yeah, that's the scoping review. The systematic review is to then look at all those fish and detail them all.
1: Yeah, what's wrong with that fish?
0: Yeah, exactly, okay. <laughs> this is the fish that John West rejects, so he throws it back into the ocean. Yeah. Okay. That's a bit. Uh, that kind that,
1: of thing. Exactly.
0: Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I think that's the easiest analogy that I could think of to cool. describe the difference between those two. But yeah. you know what? So we we actually had to change our parameters for this scoping review. So we had we had a uh, a poster uh, accepted and presented at um yeah. the colloquium. So it's one of the research yes. symposiums and um it course. was that's it. So we actually, we initially wanted to look at um, occipital range of motion in infants. Sure. And you know how many papers we could end up finding? It mm-hmm. was 13. Well, 13. Of those 13, I think we'd be able to include maybe two. Yeah. And we kind of went, it's just not worth writing up a paper uh, to say that we have this this amount of information, and it made us realize, no, our, our subject matter was too too narrow. You
1: know, yeah, and we
0: need to yeah. we need to broaden that up and have a look and see what else there actually. is. So we've now shifted this one to look at uh, cervical spine range of motion in infants.
1: Okay. Yeah, because otherwise it becomes like a letter to the editor of going like, well, well much. we have thirteen. That's exactly having said that, that's also important as as short and sweet as that ends up being. It's really important because if someone's out there looking for it, you can go, hey, there's not a lot. It's
0: not there. And well, that's that's what we hope to include with this circle spine Mm -hmm. one is to say, look, there's actually very, very little out there. And again, it just comes back down to trials. It it comes into Mm -hmm. doing the actual, excuse me, the actual measurements to determine, "Okay, there's this much range of motion. This is what's going on. But you know what the hard part with that is, Mike, mm. is the validity studies in regards to range of motion assessment in infants.
1: Mm. Yeah,
0: uh, how many in of those back. are there? Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I remember there was one by Dre Dreyfus? Dreyfus, Dreyfus is South African D R E H U I S. How do you pronounce that one?
1: Say that again. D R D
0: D R E H U I S. It sounds, D-R-E-H-U-I-S. D-R-E-H-U-I-S. It sounds Dutchy. Yeah, Dreuis. Oh, there you go. There you yeah. go. See. I, I had a very very different pronunciation there but uh yeah they were, they were looking at that one as well yeah. so the range of motion assessments between practitioners it's not always as, as clear-cut as we think so they were looking at yeah. uh, flexion rotation and the flexual lat- flexion lateral side bend testing and all that kind of yeah. whatnot so
1: this is this is so important it's so important because Again, when you're faced with a paper as a practitioner, you open up that paper and you go, right, I want to find out your cervical range of motion in kids. I want to know what's normal. I want to know what's not normal so I can have that in my tool bag. Then you start reading a paper. One of the things that needs to be in your head is to go, "Is, is the test that they're using valid? Has that test had a validation on it? Are they just using their own thing that they've kind of come up with that they think, which is cool, they can, but you have to realize that that then hasn't been through a stringent, uh, uh, you know, process of going, that this is a test that, and what you were talking about has interrelated and interrelated Um, reliability so is it reliable if I do the test and then I go back and do the test later am I going to get that same that same kind of that same outcome but if I do the test and Christian does the test are we both going to get that same outcome and those are things that are really important when you start looking at people using a tool to be able to have an outcome because if they're just using a tool they've they've come up with that's wonderful and it's really good, but you've got to realize that the validity of the what you're getting at the end of the day might not be as good and you might not want to put that much emphasis on it as a practitioner, as if the tool had a validity study behind it.
0: Uh, exactly, exactly. I think we actually spoke about this one when we talked about the hips. We talked about uh, your alter lines and barlow's testing. Yeah. Okay, Absolutely because right. that one, yeah, we, we find that, sorry, that was in, what was that one? That was Dooney and Ritchie. They were looking at uh, the Ortolani and Balo testing and testing it against no abduction testing as well. Yeah. So they were looking at those two and then figuring out, you know what, just use the test that it gives you the greater accuracy and greater reproducibility, yeah. as opposed to the yeah. test that which is Balo's and Ortolani's test, mm-hmm. which uh, uh, as, chiropractors as I, the, <laughs> that's it. Should we be doing <laughs> hey, hey, guess what? Speaking of speaking of research, so uh, the ACCP down here, we actually, we, we published a little policy talking about HIP, um, infant HIP assessment protocol for chiropractors, which was delightful. And we actually got picked up in a publication. Uh, they were looking at the different guidelines that are out there for the assessment of HIPs in infants. Cool. And I'm, I'm very pleased to say that we scored very highly on this one. Um, Wonderful. If, yeah, I might see if I can pull that paper up while we're busy having a chit chat about it. An, an interesting and, one on
1: that, just to sort of dive into that, what kind of timing were you looking at to, to assess and reassess? Because that's one of the things that falls apart on the NICE guidelines in the UK. It's way too far between and you start oh, losing kids.
0: Oh, my goodness. So... Case study I had published on hips, we've had a four and a half month old come through uh, and it only started showing positive at four and a half months. Mm. Okay. So this is a late onset or late diagnosed um, hip dysplasia. And down here in Australia, after the four-month assessment, it's not recommended again. Well, at least in Victoria, I'm not sure about other states. I can't remember at the top of my head. Victoria, is not recommended again from eight, four months until eight months of age. Wow. Yeah. I know. That's and that's missed. too big. Well, the problem is, after six months, bracing becomes less effective. Mm-hmm. Okay, if bracing becomes less effective. What are they yeah. going to do? They're going to look at potentially
1: surgery. Yeah, and then spike in costs and all sorts yeah, of, that. and, 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 right. and then your quality of life goes to goes to pieces. It's really interesting. I mean, I, I just had a kid now that uh, was a classic case of starting mm. off with 20 collars. Tauticalis then yep. lent itself to uh, to, to plagiocephaly. <clears throat> because there was a lot of packaging issue, they had the, <clears throat> the hip ultrasound right at the beginning. They said, perfect. I think one side looked a bit radiographic hip, potentially, but they said really, the, they went back to the double nappy thing, which uh, I, I can see no evidence for. But either way, they, they said, go and do all these things. Uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, bring the kid in, starting to get a click in the hip. And, and now the problem is the parents are saying, well, hang on, hang on, we've done the ultrasound. Fine. Now you have to start talking about congenital hip dysplasia versus developmental hip dysplasia. You have to start talking about the fact that you see the way that they're lying. This is putting pressure onto the one hip all the time. It's very possible that this is happening. Yeah. And true is nuts, off you go. So it's now something that would have been fine, but because we had these cofactors, and that's the other thing is that if you have things like cofactors, Um, of which reflux is an interesting one as well. If you have those in there, you definitely need to be checking hips because not only is it that your chances are higher, you have something physically that is driving that hip into a problem. So it's just Mm. mad to go from four months to eight months and have no caveats on that at all. It's a little crazy.
0: Yeah, that's it. So the paper, I've just pulled it up here. It's called Variability in Australian Screening Guidelines for Developmental Dysplasia of the Hip. And that's by uh, Emily Marriott, Uh, published in the Journal of Pediatrics and Child Health 2021, Mm -hmm. I believe, I think it is. Where is it? 2021. So that's fantastic. Um, Yeah. So according to, in our uh, policy, we we state very frequent checking. Okay. Yeah. So we typically, we went off, so it was uh, sure in 2016, the American Academy of Pediatrics. That's that's essentially Mm -hmm. the guideline when it comes to hip assessment. Mm -hmm. So we gave... um, so Safe Care Victoria, let me just context. They recommend mm-hmm. two weeks, four weeks, eight weeks, four months, eight months, 12 months. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, we looked at this one and we went, okay, so the vast majority of hip cases, you're going to pick up with them, firstly, prior to prior to one month of age, it's you're, you're looking at difficulty with performing the test. Your accuracy is going to be a little bit mm-hmm. off. So we started at one month. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've got one month, two months, three mm-hmm. months, four months, six months, eight mm-hmm. months, and 10 months. But most of so that we're looking at, most of those ones are standard. Some of those ones are extra screening recommendations. So if we're seeing a kid with those risk factors you were talking about, then we want to go down an increased vigilance pathway. Okay, so we set up two different pathways. So normal hip screen, no risk factors. Yep, you can go down this pathway and Mm. check at these dates. But you know what? You're ticking a few of those flags. Let's go down the higher vigilance pathway and check at this date, this date, this date, in addition to those other ones. So now
1: the algorithm has to break off slightly, and you have to correct it leg. Yeah.
0: Exactly, exactly. And I did exactly that. So it's a Mm. very straightforward, clear flow chart for that exact purpose. And you know, we ticked a lot of the boxes. So I was really quite, quite That's pleased wonderful. to see that happen. Yeah, yeah. It just goes to show that when you're keeping up with the evidence, it makes life a lot easier. You yeah. know? But you know what's hard? <laughs> keeping up with the keeping evidence.
1: Keeping up with the evidence. Yeah. It's not oh. it's it's not an easy story. Now I think let's let let's dive into um, kind of the levels. Of I evidence mean, because we we've been going around and we've been saying words like meta-analysis and systematic review and I know yeah. there's a couple of folks that that will kind of listen to that and go like yeah that's all you know there's either there's either research that doesn't count or, or, or there's research that I have to listen to and it's never that and there's and there's this hierarchy that goes up and down I think really important to start with the fact that you know. Uh, a lot of people kind of look at you'll have a really interesting pace and you'll kind of get that flutter of going, Oh, maybe I should publish that. And you go, it's, it's not worth it. It really is. Mm. And it's really a great idea. And, um, you know, I think one of the things that, that that could be super beneficial is just like a, an introductory course for people to be able to go, how do, or like almost like my first paper, how do I do it? Yeah. You know, because yeah, it's, it. it's, it's such a great idea. Just get the, and again, the more bricks we have, and I think that's the important thing to give to people. You're not going to change the world with your case history, your your, your, your your case paper. You're not supposed to change the world with your case paper. What you're supposed to do is add to the bricks of the house. You're not going to. You're not. You're not going to sell your case paper as a three-bedroom, four-bathroom, 360-degree 3 view mansion. That's not what no. it is. It's the yeah. corner brick.
0: Yeah, yeah, yes and no. Look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a take a different tack here and say, cool. what is the purpose of a case study? So, hang on, let, let's actually peel back even bit yeah. further and talk about that hierarchy of evidence. So, yeah. we typically we typically use that five point scale. All right. Mm-hmm. So, level one evidence being the highest level of evidence, and that one is your systematic reviews, your meta analyses, and all that kind of whatnot. And then you go right down to the very bottom, which is your case studies, essentially. Oh,
1: and even underneath okay. that, what Mike and Christian think. And that's then it. That's it. Study.
0: So yeah, but so we're looking at um, case studies, case series, cases, case mm-hmm. series. Um, you know what? Sometimes opinion gets put in that same sort of group. I, I don't yeah. like that so much because you know what? There's my opinion right there. Have I substantiated that?
1: Yeah. Mm,
0: not not really, but it's it's considered level five-ish evidence. Yeah. So this so this level five it helps us to build up on that one. So a case study. My first question is. What's the purpose? Why are you writing this case study? What do you want to achieve? Okay. The the biggest thing that I want to see out of a case study is, it's firstly, it needs to address um, a rare or unusual or really something bizarro condition, All right? I'm just trying to remember the name of the condition. So uh, Braden, myself, I had a patient come through the clinic and he has an incredibly rare genetic disorder. Uh, He's one in 4,000 in the world when he was first diagnosed with it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was talking with Brad and he goes, oh, that condition, I've got a patient with that. We have two patients in our practice of 4,000 in the world of this condition. We could write a case series about this particular condition. So we could write up about the unusualness of it, the things Mm -hmm. that it presents with, how we identified it. And, you know, so that becomes quite important. Even though it's a case study, it becomes important clinically. Mm-hmm. Like I'm busy in the process of writing one up in regards to, I'm actually looking at doing another one. Hey, Mike, you feel like writing up a case study on, on potential skull based things? Yes. <laughs> we'll get back to that. But I'm looking I'll at writing it. up another one. I'm looking up writing up one on neurofibromatosis type one. Okay. Okay. Uh, because I had a case come through of which I took one look and I looked at the mum and I said, you need to see a pediatrician. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think you need to get this checked out further. And, yep, sure enough, turned out to be NF. And um, so this case becomes really, really beneficial clinically, okay, Mm -hmm. because I'm going to be able to highlight the things to look for. Uh, So if it happens to walk through your office, you kind of go, hang on a sec, I read this in a case study somewhere. Oh, could it be this? So rare and unusual.
1: Mm -hmm. You're
0: never going to get enough rare and unusuals to do an RCT
1: on them. Yeah.
0: Okay. Because they're rare and unusual. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and so we'll that's pass
1: ethics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: that's it. <laughs> exactly. So that's that's one aspect of it. But the other side of that case study purpose is to ask a question. Mm. Okay. Mm. I, I love that. Mm. I mm. love that. A case study, it asks the question, and that question drives further research. Mm. Okay. So um writing a case at the moment on a kid who had hip dysplasia and with a period of manual therapy has resolved.
1: Wow.
0: Okay. I've not read about it previously. Uh, Look, I've looked around for it. I can't see much on there Now, look, there may be plenty of anecdotal stories out there, publish them, Um, but we're not seeing a lot. Now, my question from that study was, did what, we did to that child help that hip dysplasia? Mm-hmm. Did we help actually get that hip moving? Did we get a proper mechanotransduction transduction occurring, which allowed better development of the hip morphology and allowed that child to get up, start walking, and then that allowed natural history to take effect? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or was it natural history?
1: Yeah, We don't but it's know. Because it's a question, and then you've backed the question up with something that happened
0: correct so i've opened up a possibility i have a hypothesis okay mm-hmm. i have a biologically plausible mechanism by which this could have occurred yeah okay so that became the purpose of my case study and i see this is where i think a lot of people fall into a bit of a trap with case studies we kind of go i'm going to write this case up mm-hmm. without really appreciating why okay yeah so You get enough people asking that why question. They ask the same why question. That then turns into your clinical trial. Mm. Okay? Mm. And if not clinical trial, you could turn into an observational study. Yeah, sure. You You might get 100 infants. Or, you know what, I see, let's say I see, I don't know, 100 infants in a week, and you see 100 infants in a week. Okay. And person down the street, they see 100 infants in the street, and this person over there sees 100 Mm -hmm. infants in the street. We get a multi center study observational, and we can then see 400 infants in a week. Okay. I was talking to a mate of mine, and so he works at a hospital in the ICU. And he's -hmm. saying that what they're doing now is shifting away from the clinical trials and more towards the observational studies. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And you see, this is huge. Okay. Clinical trials, you can only really. So. You're always going to have clinical trials because if you want to try something new, you have to do the trial. Yeah. But, you know, what? how do we know if it's worked Then Observational studies become Mm -hmm. huge. Yeah. Now, observational studies, that starts to go up that hierarchy. So we've gone up from level five. So a case series or a case control study, sorry, mm -hmm. is when we go to level four. Okay, so a case study, we're just playing with just that one kid, one, maybe three kids with a similar presentation case, et cetera. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Then we need to see how does it go compared to a control study? Yeah. Okay. And that then becomes a level four. So I've got a case and I've got a control. And let's have a look at how those two go. Okay, so level four. Then we get to level three is that observational stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's starting to recruit bigger amounts of people, and starting to look at far greater numbers, and that starts you to really highlight what's going on, and then you go up to your level twos, which is your RCTs, and level mm-hmm. ones being your systematic reviews and meta analyses.
1: I think there's something really important in that as well. That hierarchy is that is that it, there, there's this feeling that unless it's been tested at level two or level one. Um, you know, we can't say anything about it. And, and I think oh, it's really important. So that, it's so important to understand that RCTs are developed specifically to test a thing. And mm. they are quite, plastic is always the word that comes to my mind. They're quite engineered. Um, mm. And one of the things I always look at, if I'm looking at an RCT and going, I wonder if I could put that into practice. Uh, It's very important, and and we all skip over it because we all want to see the sexy bits. We all want to see the abstract. We want to see all the fancy bits. We want to see the discussion at the bottom. We want to see the conclusion. But if you don't go into the methods and find out who were those people inside that Mm -hmm. trial and you look specifically for what the inclusion and what the exclusion criteria were, you cannot take that information and put it towards your patient because it's very possible that your patient would have been excluded from that trial, Mm. because they would have had this or that or the other thing. So that data is not just because it's an RCT. Is not just automatically transferable. I think that's mm. one really important thing: is to understand that most of the the patients in your practice would not have been included in the study mm. that you're looking at because they live in the real world and they've had antibiotics in the last however long, or they've had another problem, or they've broken a bone, or they've had some sort of systemic thing going on, and they're not going you know, to they're not going to form part of that. And I think that's one part. And the other part, which is really important to understand is that some things don't do well through an RCT mode of, or mode of viewing. So if you wanted to work out if cigarettes were bad for you, it's very tough. And ethics is never gonna let you put 30 people on mm-hmm. cigarettes <laughs> 30 people on no cigarettes <laughs> or the reverse. They're not gonna give you 30 people on a drug that we know or an a, a intervention that we know does really well and withhold that intervention from another 30 people because ethically that's not right to do. Especially when you come down to pediatrics, you can't withhold something that you know is gonna mm. benefit. So the thing is some, some questions are really not designed for an RCT. So if you wanted to look at smoking, what you would do is do an observational study on a lot of people, and you could do it prospectively, you could do it retrospectively, whatever yep. you wanted to. But it's a question that is designed for that mode of study, which is really important. So sometimes people will go, "Ah, oh, there's the information," but it's not from an RCT. It, it, you just have to dig a little bit further and then go, "That was the perfect study to be able to tell us what was going on there, because an RCT wouldn't have been able." It's not uh, what they call powered towards that outcome it's not engineered that way to be able to give us that that final outcome
0: exactly you've got it there and this is what makes it really difficult clinically so what do you do then if you don't have the evidence to back up what you're wanting to do
1: Hmm. Yeah, and this is where it becomes really interesting because when we came up right in the beginning with evidence-based medicine, the idea was that empirical data was one third of the triad to actually treat a patient. So it was one third. And it took up 33.333 recurring percent of of what you needed. And those other two have kind of been left in the dust, especially in the last 18 months. But one of the other ones is Me as the practitioner, what's my experience? Which is why you get things like the gastrointestinal guys will get together and they'll put together the Rome criteria. And some of that has to do with them looking at the literature. But the majority of Rome has to do with 11 gastroenterologists going, this is what we know because we're the top of our game. We can tell you that this is what we find. And then they synthesize that. And then that becomes your guideline. So that's the other part. But then the other part, which is now almost wholly left out is the patient's wants and needs. Because the patient coming in has certain expectations and we can go, well, you know, I'm going to treat you until you're the most, you know, Athletic, agile person and the 89 year old granny is going, but all I want is to pick up my shopping and <laughs> go, you know, uh-huh. so, or, uh, or you, or you get uh, the reverse where you have, where you have a little baby and, and, and the, the evidence is saying, well, you only treat up to there, but the of the parents going, look, I want the best for my kid. I don't want them just to get it there. Yeah, I want to get you, ah, and what have you got? And then you can go, well, here's the evidence. Here's my experience. And that's what they want. I'm going to meld those three things together. And then we're going to build a plan.
0: Exactly. And you know what? That is now evidence-based care. That's it. Okay. You're using, see, this is where we've got a bit of a shortcoming as well. You know what? If there is no published evidence or the best evidence is only level five evidence, that is the best evidence.
1: It becomes best evidence because it's what you have.
0: That's right. If there is nothing out there, as long as you are informing the patient that I do not know of any evidence or any research in regards to this one, let's give it a trial of care because I can see a method in which this could work. Okay as long as there is information coming through and you're providing that in a very clear and concise manner. So I'm going to, I'm going to use this one. So I had a patient, not, not an old lady trying to go shopping, but I had a 30 a month old come through with hip dysplasia. Uh, it's funny, you know, I'm seeing a lot of hip dysplasia recently, Mike, are mm-hmm. you seeing a lot of hip dysplasia? Yeah.
1: yeah. It has been not
0: incredible. Oh, mm-hmm. but this is a 30 month old and I'm watching her. So, Second appointment, last appointment was a year ago. So a year ago, I saw her once and then she's disappeared and come back again and I watched her walk and she's got that that waddling gait yeah. going. And I'm like, oh, hello. That's not good. Something, something's been missed here. And um, yep, sure enough, the kid's got bilateral hip dysplasia. Mm. And so I, I talked to the dad about this one. He goes, look, we've been to the orthopedic surgeon you know, we've been to the pediatrician. They're saying at this age, um, bracing maybe, but we're not hopeful. And he said, "Well, how about manual therapy?" And um, to the to the orthopod's credit, they said, "Look, give it a shot." Yeah. What's the, What's What's the worst that happens?
1: Risk. You know, we, benefit. I'll exactly.
0: Figure. If 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 it doesn't work, well, we'll brace you up at the end of that. And yep. so the parents have come in and he's and I was absolutely gobsmacked. The dad said, Look, I want to commit to at least four months. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Okay, wow, yep. that's 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 fantastic. Let's let's do this, let's see what's going on. We'll keep a track of all these different objective measures. So we're busy measuring hip range of motion. We've we've recorded her gait so we can do some gait analysis and all that kind of mm-hmm. whatnot. And this is now becoming evidence, uh, evidence-informed care. So I'm looking at my previous case that I've looked at and I've gone, you know what? I've had it happen once before. <laughs> N equals yeah. one. You know what? Yeah. This honey and almond might go okay in this coffee.
1: Yeah. Right?
0: <laughs> so it's opened up a, a trial of care. Yeah. Now, if I'm not seeing a huge improvement or a, a an improvement occurring soon, then I might say, look, you know what? Uh, it's There's no harm in getting the brace done at the same time.
1: mm mm-hmm. Okay, yep. because you know what? While Absolutely. you're here, you take
0: the brace off, give it the treatment, plonk it back on again.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah. I think there, there are two very important parts of what you've, what you've just explained here. One is, and that's what uh, Dr. Katie Pullman taught me years and years ago, and it's always a, a kind of a pillar of what I do, is is to own what is known. So don't, don't try and make it bigger. Don't try and aggrandize it. Say, we don't know. What we know is that this might happen and that might happen. That's what I know. I'm then going to say, I'm going to add on to that, but to be very honest about the fact that this is where empirically, this is what we know. I can't help you further than that. This is what I found, but not to aggrandize anything, just to just completely own what we know. The second part is that it becomes a very, very honest interchange because what the big issue with that is someone going, if they come in with that and you start saying fear mongering stuff and you start saying, Well, you know, if you don't come, then this is going to happen. This, and that's happening. Yeah. Now. And that yeah. is not what it should be about at all. And the way for me that you get away from that fear mongering is you actually have objective measures, just like you were saying, which is why I'm picking it up, to be able to go, Here's our range of motion of the hip. I'm then going to take that again in two weeks or three weeks or four weeks. And then we're going to go, am I making a change? Not to say, if you don't come and I'm going to see you three times a week for the rest of your life. And, and you know, if that doesn't happen, this will happen. Instead of blah, blah about what you think might happen, because let's be perfectly honest, you don't know. You, that's why it's a trial of care. But what you do know is what the one measurement said and what the other measurement said. And then you can go, All right, I'm giving you, I, it's not even my opinion. This is, this is the measuring tape's opinion of, yeah. of, of what's Of what's going on. See, That's we're it. making a change, and I'm then happy to move on. And then it's that consistent uh, agreement between the parents and yourself going, all right, we are seeing a change. Are you happy with the change I'm seeing? In the context that I'll give you, I'm happy with the change I'm seeing. Or you go, hang on, guys, this this you know we've given it. Because the thing is, if you initially come out the gate and you aggrandize everything and you say, it's this and it's that, And then it starts to not work because it very well might not work because it's a trial. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's what happens in trials. If you set Mm -hmm. yourself up for that, you can only fail. Parents can only get upset. You get upset with yourself. You go home and read a million self-help books about why am I not the best doctor in the world? (laughs) Because it's just the approach of going, it's a trial. I'm, I'm doing what I can to help you, and I'm going to do that until it comes to the point where it is obvious to me that I'm not impacting.
0: Exactly. If I'm not impacting,
1: I'm happy to stand back, and I'm happy. And I think people just appreciate honesty, because I do. When I take my kids somewhere, I appreciate honesty, you know?
0: Yep, yep. Well, that's, yes. And people don't mind if you don't know. Okay. Yeah. You know, this is it's actually funny. I was talking about this at a dinner a dinner with some mates the other night. I believe it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect, that that yes. curve where we you know what we we get, how we talk about this at dinner. You know I've got a bunch of mates we are having this beautiful shabu-shabu dinner and we're busy dunking our meat into the hot pot and we're talking about levels of evidence and all this kind of stuff as you do. And these guys aren't even chiropractors. It's fantastic. So I've got like architects and food import experts. It's brilliant. And anyway, so we talked about the Dunning-Kruger. And so essentially what this one is, is think about when you first come out of university. When you first come out of university, you kind of know everything, right? Because you've just yeah. passed chiropractic and you, you've done well and you've got a yeah. piece of paper that says you're a chiropractor. And you're like, damn straight I am. I know everything. And yeah. so you go down that path where you think you can treat everything and you know everything and you can help everyone. And yeah. you see a little old lady down the street and you go, chiropractic, she'll be 30 years younger. No problems. Yeah. And then you get to that point where something happens just like you said you know you've got this kid or you've got this patient and it didn't work the way you wanted it to work
1: yeah
0: and your whole world falls around apart falls apart around you yeah and you kind of go oh my goodness what has happened and this is a good thing okay that's you cresting that curve of knowledge mm-hmm. okay because it's a false curve it's that false peak mm-hmm. and that's when you go right the way back down to the bottom when you realize oh my goodness there is yeah. so much I did not know.
1: Yeah. It's yeah. it's one of the most incredible things. The best way I've had Dunning-Kruger explained to me is not realizing that you are the dumbest person in the room. <laughs> that's that's exactly it. You know, I used to think,
0: I used to think, I, I can remember the day that Dunning-Kruger kicked in for me. Yeah. I was working up in Brisbane, a beautiful practice. I had great mentors, great colleagues. It was absolutely beautiful practice. And I had this patient and I started doing, pediatrics i started doing this program and i thought oh you know i've done a few seminars i've done i've done this course with dr davies i've done this one with the Mm keating sisters and you know i've done all these things so i know my stuff and then i did this one and i went back to the practice and i'm like oh my gosh how have i not hurt anyone you know Mm -hmm. how have i not missed all of these things and your eyes get opened yeah. And you kind of go, oh, boy, you yeah. wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. And this is now, I find myself, I feel like I'm crawling my way up that, that, that yeah. pile of information yeah. and kind of going, you know what? I know a little bit about this now. Oh, yeah, I know a bit more about that. Yeah, okay. I'm feeling a bit more confident than this time. And I think the best indication of when you know that you are comfortable with what you know, you know the limits of what you know.
1: Yeah. And yeah. so
0: that's the thing. I'm at a point now where I know what I know
1: yeah.
0: and, I, and I know what I don't know.
1: Yeah. I'm pretty sure so, of the things I don't know. I know where that's they it. are and I know where they that's are it. as well. Yeah.
0: And you yeah. know what becomes really useful then is this magical word called referring. Yeah. Okay. Do you find chiropractors, we've got this real fear of collaborative care?
1: Yeah. My patient. It's my patient. I've explained my. things to my patient. That's it. That's yeah. it.
0: We turn into yep. this little gollum. Process, yes. And we don't let anyone come near to.
1: Because this is a chiropractic patient.
0: This is a chiropractic patient. Hmm. That's right. Yeah. And we chiropractors, we know everything. Yeah. Sorry, I'm getting into a bit of a high horse kind of a
1: thing. I'm going to stick down
0: from that podium.
1: But I think, I think it's good to explore that from time to time. And I think it's good to explore that with a little bit of humility as well to go in and go, look at the time do I do that. I get it. I get it. Because I think there are times that anyone in any profession is really proud of what they do. Um, and you're also, you're, you're proud of the outcomes that you've got. And I don't think it's bad. I think it's just good to be able to explore it and go, is there a dark side to, you know, to 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 feeling a certain way or looking at things a certain way or more importantly, is the lens with which I look at this sort of blocking a couple of things out with, for me, am I looking at this yeah. with UV glasses, seeing 80% of what's going on around me. And, and here's an interesting, here's an interesting one. I had a wonderful in South Africa, a wonderful a physio, Cheryl, that we were, I used to see as a patient. And we started off right in the beginning. She came in and saw me and she said, ah, it's nice to be able to see you because, uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, we, we share a lot of patients and I was like, Oh, that's great. You know? And, and i learned her name, but the interesting thing was I was like, Oh, I see all of this person's babies, you know, because they just ugh, I mean must be a complete mess up there because it's obviously I'm just seeing all these disaster cases coming through to me. And she said, you know, it's interesting to meet you because I see your mistakes. And I was like, Oh. Oh okay. And she and then she said she was she was older than me, which, which is great because she had more, more sort of a vision on it. And she said, you know, and, and you see mine. And, and we need to understand that about each other, that we are going to see where we've misstepped. We are going to see where we haven't connected with the patient. I'm going to see those. and You're going to see the other ones. And it's up to us to be able to rise above that and to be able to go, I can't help everyone and be grateful that there is someone else Somebody out who there. Can. Because at the end of the day, it's not about chiropractic or physio osteopathy at the end of the day it should be patient-based care so we should be going look i can't help everyone i'm just really glad that there's someone out there that they resonate with there's someone out there whose technique really works for them and that kid is getting what they need and at the end of the day there's almost another dunning-kruger thing to be able to get there
0: oh my gosh
1: you know to to be able Mm -hmm. to go it's fine It's fine, you know, and and to actually have the patient at the center, because we all talk about it. We will pay a whole lot of lip service to having a patient at the center of the care. But to actually get them to actually let go and say, oh, someone got helped by someone else because what I was doing, I was filtered or I wasn't. That's a massive step to take, because if your ego is in the way, you're going to get bashed down, especially guys. We're not great with that. So yeah, it's just an interesting—it's an interesting observation, and it was uh, that was my moment where she came in and said to me, "I see your mistakes." I thought, "I don't have mistakes." Well, of course you don't, because they don't come back, you know. (laughs) How are you going to know? You know, Uh, and it's that moment and going with that big realization.
0: Yep, 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 yep. Uh, Exactly. You know, and uh, I really like that you've you've pointed out there the mistakes you know what? We are allowed to make mistakes as well. Okay. Yeah. As long as you identify, accept, you know, I, I'm going through this process with my kids at the moment. So my daughter's going through this phase, my daughter's 10 mm-hmm. and she's got this, this stage of uh, where she cannot do anything wrong. You know, she left her lunchbox at school today at school today. And I'm like, kid, where's your lunchbox? Goes, I forgot it at school. I'm like, why? And she goes, oh, well, I had Italian class after. And I'm like, that doesn't actually give you an answer. That, that's that's You had Italian. What, what's that got to do yeah. with leaving your lunchbox at school?
1: Yeah. Where are you at a lunchbox? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's it. I'm sorry, you didn't do the lean-in. And what was that? That was that, the clunk with the uh, the DDH there, wasn't it? I that <laughs> that's it. And um, I said, sweetheart, you're allowed to make a mistake. You know, you can say, oh, I'm sorry. You know, I, yeah. got, I got left yeah. up with school
1: Ooh, I dear, completely you, forgot it. Give me one sec. Come through. Yeah, no, it's cool. There's it. Go right ahead. Cool. It's getting to that time, is it? No, I'm just someone needed something from my room. Carry on.
0: Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, (laughs) Where was I? Yes, mistakes. So we are allowed to make mistakes. Okay, take ownership of your mistakes. Mm -hmm. Okay, recognize that if you've done the wrong thing, correct it. Okay, Mm -hmm. work on getting. It comes back down to the (laughs) ego. You talked about Mm -hmm. ego. And ego really is one of the hardest things to put to the side. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm very grateful that I have two kids. So my son's eight, and my daughter's 10 mm-hmm. and we'll sit there and we'll, we'll be, just be sitting there like the other night we're sitting there laying there together. And I just hear my son, he starts counting you know, one, two, three, four, five. And I'm like, kid, what, what are you counting?" He goes, Oh, the amount of gray hairs you've got coming out at the moment. And I'm like, "Oh, that's, that's, nice. that's, that's, that's lovely. Nice. That's lovely. Nice. And, um, I, I noticed that sometimes when I get stressed, I get a degree of uh, like almost a stress alopecia response yeah. and uh, yeah. part of my eyebrow, my eyebrow yeah. starts to fall out. I'm like, okay, that's that's a thyroid issue. Let's get that checked out. But to my kid's credit, they decided to to work with that. So they drew up a, an amazing comic. I'll actually put something on um, on the Facebook page and Instagram, <laughs> and it's called Christian's Missing Eyebrow.
1: Wonderful.
0: <laughs> wonderful. They created this wonderful. this wonderful comic. So humility you know my yep. ego i'm not yep. allowed to develop an ego because i've got two kids that keep that in check
1: yeah yeah <laughs> so, and it's, it's just it is it's <laughs> i really i need to see this comic it sounds sounds incredible <laughs> sounds like it's, it's
0: interesting it is interesting
1: and that's the thing you know the, the the mistakes can come in all sorts of flavors i mean we're thinking clinical stuff but it can also be and, and sometimes it's not even your fault it's just you, you get off on the wrong foot with someone it happens. Mm. Sometimes you're a little busy, or you, you God forbid, t- call someone the wrong name or have a file out that has a little bit of, or you have mixed up something, or you something really important. And, you know, it, just to be able to yeah. get your way back from there. It's all about people being able to grab confidence straight away and that kind of thing. So there's That's lots right. of different bits and pieces where that can go. And I think at the end of the day, sometimes it's just life. You go, okay, you know. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it is definitely interesting.
0: That's it. And did I, I'm, I'm going to come right back to that evidence side of things. Mm-hmm. You know what? If you're following the evidence, if you've got that evidence background, if you're doing the right things, you're doing the trials and you're using your evidence to help inform you, then you know what? You're, being, you're going to be supported by your decision making. Yeah. Okay. Follow that, that evidence trail. Have that evidence backing you mm-hmm. up. And you've got something to stand behind them. You've got something helping with what you're trying to put through. And yeah, that's what it really, very, that's really, that's really what evidence comes down to. That's what it's there for, yeah. it's to help us with our clinical decision making so we can get the best outcomes for our patients.
1: Right. Absolutely right. Look, I'm just so glad we actually got to chat a little bit about evidence, about why it's important, where it belongs, uh, how to get the best out of it um should you add to it you know uh like you you schooled me a little bit in that which is absolutely right you should be asking questions because that's what research is all about so when you come down to something if something is piqued or interesting you see something really interesting ask the question and and a, a case study is a professional asking the question and, and right. laying down what i found what do you guys think you know is there anyone else out there you know that's it's almost like a, a lighthouse shining out going some something has happened. Has anyone else had this 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 weirdo thing happen?
0: Exactly, exactly. So that that actually leads us into this brilliant little thing. I think it's coming to that point in the night where we're almost about to wrap things up. I think it and is. I think it's going to be really good. We're going to. I know we said that we're going to do this tonight, but mm-hmm. what we wanted to do tonight was actually focus on the evidence a little bit. I know mm-hmm. um, we had an email coming through, uh, Samantha. Thank you very much for sending your email through. Very cool. Talking about levels of evidence So I hope we answered uh-huh. some of the questions that you asked there but if we didn't do it tonight we're definitely going to do it next episode because next yeah. episode we're going to work with not just yourself Mike but I understand yeah. you're trying to organize a guest to come and join us next time
1: yeah absolutely man so so I, I was, I was uh, happy enough to work with Dr Matt Doyle a uh, fellow Australian uh, putting together a paper looking at um, developmental uh, delays and chiropractic. So we're going to get money on and we're going to have a chat and we're going to go through exactly what we were talking about in that paper. What were the questions we were asking uh, and what were we trying to put forward and what what was that brick in the house there to do? So I'm very, very keen to get money on and we'll have a, we'll have a good chat.
0: Fantastic. Well, I'm looking forward to that one as well, because you know what? I've got a few questions for you guys,
1: too. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. And that's what it's all about. If we can open it up and we can have a bit of debate about stuff that is exactly what we're here to do. So thank you very much for tuning in and listening to us talk a whole bunch of stuff again. It's always fun. Please, please mail us. Please follow us on Instagram because we have an Instagram account now, which is really cool. Uh, And we do post some stuff into the Facebook page as well. And of course, leave a review. Wherever you get your podcasts, because reviews always help us. And the last thing, uh, kind of, I meant to say, as always, but I don't think I've ever said it. If you feel that there is one of your colleagues out there that could really benefit from just listening to the two of us, uh, you know, sort of uh, wag our tongues around for an hour, um, please do share it with them. And, and uh, yeah, we just keep to, we just keep to get it out there and uh, and and get the debate going. I think is, I think is, is what I'm trying to inelegantly say.
0: Exactly. We say debate, discussion, discussion, conversation. Let's get some (laughs) conversation happening. Mike, thanks very much for another great night. All right. Chat to you again soon.
1: Love you. Take it easy, Bill.